Please turn with me to the book of 3 John, which is toward the back of the Bible, three books from the end, 3 John, Jude, Revelation. We are continuing our series on the book of 3 John entitled, A Life of Love. It was in the first century, the early church, that the Apostle John wrote a brief and affectionate letter uh, to his friend Gaius, who was serving in another church, and God has recorded this letter for us in His Word for our instruction and encouragement. The book of 3 John, our sermon title today is Beware of Troublemakers. Beware of Troublemakers. And we'll be focusing especially on verses 9 and 10, but this letter is brief enough that I want to continue as we have been to read this letter in its entirety. This is God's holy and authoritative word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. May God bless the preaching of His Word. One of the important painters in the history of Italian art is Caravaggio. Uh, the fascinating thing about Caravaggio's life is that he created uh, biblical Christian paintings while living an ungodly and violent life. 
someone said that to say Caravaggio was a troublemaker would be like saying the Beatles were a bit famous. When Caravaggio finished a painting, he would go out drinking, gambling, and fighting for months at a time, and the stories are abundant. On one occasion, he threw a plate of scalding hot food in the face of a waiter, starting this big fight, which led to yet another arrest. On another occasion, he and another guy were drunk, and they were interested in the same woman, which led to a sword fight in which he killed the other guy. So Caravaggio is known for his Christian art and his criminal record is the picture. One police report from 1606 references his constant provocations, superior behavior, arrogance, and jealousy. Now it ought to go without saying that those who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ ought not be troublemakers. And yet the sad reality is that there will always be troublemakers in the church of Christ. As a pastor, I have a window into a few more stories perhaps than the average person. I once interacted with a faithful pastor and friend of mine who said there was someone in his church who opposed the church and was seeking to influence people in the church away from the pastors. On a Saturday night, the troublemaker sent a critical accusatory email to the entire membership of the church, and he also wrote cult on the church window and on the bumper of the pastor's car. This is a friend of mine. Now, what I want to emphasize is the likelihood that very similar things will happen in our future as a church. And the reason for that has to do with the teaching of Scripture. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul tells a group of pastors that men will arise in the church who speak twisted things and lead people astray. In Titus 3, verse 10, we are warned of those who stir up division. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, it speaks of the man who has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Problems are sure to come. And it's not just external opposition from unbelievers, but internal struggles from professing believers, troublemakers in the church. Good luck finding a church that has not been damaged by a diotrephes. Our statement of faith says even true churches are imperfect. They often contain a mixture of unbelievers hidden among the true flock and are vulnerable to theological error and moral failure. It is the imperfection of the church. And this is not a modern development. It has been this way from the beginning. What that means is that our search for the perfect church will not be satisfied in this life. It means that pastoral work is marked by both encouragement and correction and reproof. It means that we need to avoid the troublemaking tendencies in our own lives, and we need to understand how to respond to troublemakers in the church. Now, I thank God that we do not currently have a diatrophies in the church. This sermon would be a thousand times more awkward. This is the perfect time to teach this. I have no people in view. 
But the same tendency is in our hearts. And God in his kindness today is instructing us and protecting us through his authoritative word. So two points, we'll look at each of these. Point number one, how to be a troublemaker. And point two, how to respond to troublemakers. Point one, how to be a troublemaker. Commentators say that it was likely that Diotrephes had some sort of leadership role, but we don't, we don't know. Diotrephes is given a warning. He is a negative example to be avoided, that we should not be like him. And it's in verses 9 and 10 that we sort of have this profile of a troublemaker. So here is how you too can be like Diotrephes, how to be a troublemaker. First, put yourself first. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Someone translated it, that status-loving Diotrephes. He does not serve others. He is greedy for position and power. He is a man of great personal ambition, and he is a man not submitted to authority. Realize that any leader is dangerous if he or she has not first learned how to follow. Here he does not acknowledge authority and he likes to put himself first. What an indictment of this professing believer. There's a, a famous a Greek scholar, A.T. Robinson, he wrote an article about Diotrephes for a denominational newspaper calling him the church boss. And in the weeks following the publication of that article, uh, the editor received angry letters from 25 angry deacons in various churches canceling their subscription. Apparently, they all thought the article was a personal attack on them. As followers of Christ, we must not love to put ourselves first. Yes, that sinful tendency is in our hearts, but we must not embrace it or live to that end. Rather, we must lay down our lives in service of others. That is the way of Christ, our Savior, who humbled himself, who looked to the interest of others, who laid down his life on the cross for the good of others. The Christian, and especially Christian leaders, are called to humility and to submission and to sacrificial service. Don't put yourself first. The second way to be a troublemaker is to talk wicked nonsense. Verse 10, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. This could be translated gossiping maliciously, uh, undercutting us with destructive talk. It means to malign. It means to charge unjustly. One translation says, he lays baseless and spiteful charges against us. This gossip was aimed at the apostle John and his co-workers, and this gossip was absolutely deadly in the church, as it always is. We in 
Our churches in sovereign grace have on numerous occasions been on the receiving end of baseless and unjust charges, this kind of destructive talk, this wicked nonsense. And I have seen as a pastor and as a leader the kind of damage that it does, the kind of damage to be done by those who do not guard their speech but rather talk wicked nonsense, the diatrophies of the world. Alexander Strzok says, conflict can turn the mouth into a weapon of mass destruction. Most Christians don't realize how much slander hurts people and stirs up malicious contention. It is truly a devilish force for community destruction. That's what the mouth, read James 3, and you see the destruction that can come with words, the, pow- the great power of words. There was a man named D.E. Host who was the uh, successor to Hudson Taylor who founded the China Inland Mission, a man with many years of ministry experience. Host was responsible for more than a thousand missionaries to China, and he said something remarkable that I read. He He was talking about his experience in ministry and working with with leaders, and he said that looking back over 50 years of ministry, if he was asked to mention the one thing that has done more harm and has occasioned more sorrow and division in God's work than anything else, if he were asked what would that one thing be, he would say gossip and slander. The destruction that has been done in the church of Christ from those who speak wicked nonsense. Let's allow as a church the example of diatrophies to serve as a reminder of the importance of being careful in our speech, especially in the age of the internet. Guard your speech against tearing others down. Refuse to gossip and slander. Use gracious edifying speech that builds up and gives life and encouraging others, and you will, by the grace of God, avoid being a troublemaker and will rather maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. And then uh, third subheading under this point of how to be a troublemaker, lastly, how to be a troublemaker, refuse to love. This is also in verse 10. We're told that Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers and he stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So for whatever reason, he did not want these traveling Christian workers to be received and he even prevents others from accepting them and puts people out of the church if they do. So here's a people in which people are being wrongly kicked out of the church of Christ. It is a tragic situation. Diotrephes, look at what your pride is producing. You are slandering John, you are rejecting missionaries, and you are excommunicating faithful Christians. It is an abuse of leadership. It is an abuse of authority, and it is destructive in the church of Christ. And oh, how I pray that God protects us in covenant fellowship from every proud, loveless, troublemaking tendency in our own hearts. Rather than refusing to love, rather than refusing to welcome others, we must love as Christ has loved us when he died in our place. Having been loved by God, we are now called 
to be a community of unity and love. And so whatever authority we have, we must not be domineering or lorded over others. Rather than be troublemakers, we are to be peacemakers in the church. And the way to do this is to walk in humility and in love and to prioritize this in our lives just as you are doing as a church. May it be that God continues to protect us and preserve us, that we might be a church devoted to a life of love so that unity, just as it has marked us in the past, would continue to mark us long into the future. Now, a second point, which we learned negatively there, how to be a troublemaker, don't do that. All right, the way I framed that, you better not go do those things. You'll be a troublemaker and you need to avoid that. But then second, how to respond to troublemakers. Here's what we find, that too often when a diatrophies emerges in the church, Christians become unsettled. Some leave a church or leave a denomination. Others begin to be suspicious of the pastors. Some become consumed with controversy. How quick we are to be unsettled. How quick we are to be troubled. And certainly part of the problem, I believe, is that our expectations have not been informed by Scripture. We should expect troublemakers in the church and therefore should not be unsettled or surprised by them. I, I wish that there was some way to avoid controversy and conflict among believers But the reality is that the Word of God itself sets our expectations elsewhere. I I know stories of modern-day diatrophies who have worked to remove a pastor from a church or have sought to turn people away from the church or who have created fractures that split churches into two. Most, Most troublemaking will not be theological, but behavioral. It'll, it'll happen in the realm of violations of love and Christian unity in the name of normally seeking to be right or seeking our own glory. Ambition is just as deadly as heresy. John Stott says, personal vanity still lies at the root of most dissensions in every local church today. And because being saved by the grace of God does not entirely remove the presence of sin from our lives, we must always be on guard against remaining sin, against the pride in our hearts that clings so closely, and realize that none of us are beyond the possibility of becoming this kind of troublemaker. We should expect them as part of our response. In addition to expecting troublemakers in the church, leaders must have the courage to oppose them. There are inevitably some Christians who hear the way that John talks about diatrophies and thinks, well, that's not very nice. It's not a very nice thing for, for him to say when he talks, when he says that he likes to put himself first and refers to his speech as wicked nonsense. But here's the thing, John is a skilled pastor and leader, and he is both loving and courageous. And this 
confrontation, this correction is consistent with love and in fact is essential to love. Diotrephes needs to be rescued from himself and the church needs to be protected from him. The shepherd who is nice to everyone will soon find his flock devoured by wolves. Because the shepherd was nice to the wolf who came in among the sheep. Only being very nice all of the time. There is a need for a courage. And I say this, leaders lead the way in this. But how a, a congregation responds when that courage is displayed matters a lot. Because it needs to be that when a diatrophies is called out, that we say, yes, that's what faithful, courageous, pastoral leadership looks like. It's essential in the church. Ian Hamilton says this, commenting on, on these verses in 3 John. He says, too often arrogant men are allowed to thrive in Christ's church because no one has the courage to oppose them. Failure to exercise godly, necessary discipline has been the ruin of many churches. Yes, it has been the ruin of many churches. A man like Diotrephes comes along and we say, oh, let's humble ourselves before him and what can we learn from him and let's see what ounces of truth there may be and what he is saying. And there is the failure of courage to confront and to call out behavior that is out of line. We must have the courage to oppose those who are undermining love and unity in the church. And, and so here's another lesson. I hope each one of you value church discipline. I hope, I hope each one of you in the church, should you ever move on from this church, which is often the case um, for any number of reasons, but I hope that part of what you look for in a healthy church is a church that practices church discipline. In other words, a church that values membership and a church that is willing, should you abandon Christ, a church that would be willing to kick you out of the church. That's the kind of church that I want to be a part of and that's because it's the mark of a healthy church. If Diotrephes does not repent, he must be disciplined. And John, this is what John means when he says he will bring up what he is doing. This would initiate the process of discipline. There is such thing as, as proper discipline and excommunication. Diotrephes was obviously wrongfully excommunicating people. There are abuses in discipline, but there is also proper, godly, healthy, biblical church discipline that is an essential part of a healthy church. You see that in Matthew 18. You see it in 1 Corinthians 5. So, I just want to say be willing to be a part of a church that is willing to remove you if you abandon Christ. In our church, and this is something that we do in, in members meetings. You hear us say that we do uh, members meetings periodically. Well, we give membership updates as part of those meetings. And part of what we communicate there is the names of any who have been excommunicated from the church due to serious public ongoing sin in their lives. Um, most years in our church, we have someone formally in a discipline process or excommunicated. 
It is not a rare or uncommon thing, sadly. It is to a degree, but oh, how we all pray and wish that it were far more rare. Removal from the church is an essential part of a healthy church, and it is intended to bring about repentance in the individual. It is loving. It is loving to the individual because it's saying, we need you to follow Christ. We need you to come back to Christ. It may be that there are some here who have even found themselves in that place where you once followed Christ, but now you have rejected him. Come back to Christ. That's what discipline says. It also protects the church from moral pollution and from sin, and it promotes the glory of God. So discipline, it needs to be loving. It needs to be careful. It needs to be wise. It should, it should be carried out with tears in our eyes. But there must be discipline in the church. A point related to this that I want to make briefly is that churches should have wise procedures for hearing concerns and for navigating crisis and controversy. Gary Burge in his commentary on 3 John actually draws some helpful applications related to this point. He talks about the need for pastors to be protected from opponents by extra local support and help from outside the congregation, just as Gaius's church received that help from John. And what Gary Bird says is that local pastors cannot be left alone to slay the diatrophies of the world. He says that 3 John raises modern questions like what processes should be in place to make sure that concerns are heard fairly and objectively. And he also says many denominations today have judicial structures in place that help arbitrate such confrontations, but many independent churches do not. And as I read that, I found myself thanking God that we are not a strictly independent church, and I found myself thanking God for our book of church order in Sovereign Grace with its biblical principles and procedures that promote justice in difficult situations. We need to think about this. We need to learn how to respond to troublemakers by the grace of God, ensuring that we ourselves are kept from troublemaking tendencies and by the grace of God that we would be strengthened to respond well in a way that honors God, respond well to troublemakers when they emerge. Let me make one last point in relation to troublemakers because uh, church discipline does not make a great end to a sermon. And the last point that I want to make is this, that we should praise God that the church will never perish. Some of you have had bad church experiences, like those kicked out of the church by Diotrephes, like those slandered by him. Some of you will have bad church experiences in the future. But it needs to be remembered that Diotrephes will not have the last word. He's not the last word on the church because our Savior has the last word. Churches are imperfect. <laughs> Don't make an idol out of the church. Churches are imperfect. The church is not a Savior. Churches are imperfect, but our Savior is not imperfect. 
He is gloriously perfect. And the Lord of the church is fiercely committed to his church. He has promised that he will build his church. He has promised the triumph of the church. There's a hymn that puts it like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. The church is his idea. He created it. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. And the hymn goes on. Some of you may know it. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain and cherish is with her to the end. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed. When we look at the church, what do we see? We see her oppressed by schisms rent asunder, divisions, by heresies distressed. There will always be diatrophies. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. In other words, it will not always be this way. We have a future. We have a hope. Praise God that the church will never perish. Praise God that the Lord Jesus Christ himself lives to defend, to guide, to sustain, to cherish his people. However great the trials of the church have been, soon the night of weeping will give way to the morning of joyful song. The church of Jesus Christ will never perish. We belong to an institution that will endure forever. God has a plan for his church that no diatrophies can ever thwart that no sin in our hearts or in others can ever stand in the way of. Christ has said he will build his church. And this is our hope. And this is our confidence as we live a life of love in the imperfect church that God has called us to. I want to invite the band to return. The man who wrote this letter, John, also wrote the book of Revelation. And so we know he had a vision of the end a vision of the triumph of Christ, a vision of the triumph of his people, and that future shaped his understanding and his perspective of the church in the present. I shared with you that statement in our statement of faith on the imperfections of the church. Uh, even true churches are imperfect, vulnerable to theological error, moral failure. Welcome to the church of Christ. But then the next sentence in our statement of faith says this, and this is what I want to leave us with. Yet Christ is unwavering in his commitment to build his church and will surely bring it to maturity. There is one who is unwavering in his commitment to build the church, and he has promised that he will bring it to maturity. And then later in our statement of faith, it says this, when Christ returns, he will gather and perfect his church from every tribe, tongue, and nation as a people for his own possession, and he will dwell with them forever. 
So friends, here is good news for every sinner and for every imperfect church. We have a Savior who died in the place of sinners, taking the judgment that we deserve upon Himself. We have a Savior who rose from the dead that we as His people might share in that glorious victory. We have a Savior who will never fail us, however greatly imperfect churches fail us in this fallen world. We have a Savior who has promised that He will build His church and one day return for His bride to purify His church, to perfect His church. He will dwell with us forever and we will praise Him for all eternity, for His faithfulness, for His power, for His love. There is none like Him. Our Savior is faithful. He is with us. He is building His church. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's stand and praise his name together.